Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. I'm very pleased to have on the show today Anna Lutfi, an equality and human rights barrister with the Barrister Group, specializing in discrimination in employment law. She is a consultant to the Bad Law Project, currently supporting parents in bringing group litigation against the Department for Education for failure to protect pupils against political ideology and risks associated with encouraging, quote unquote, gender transition. Currently, Anna is working on a book about compelled speech called I Would Prefer Not To. Until 2015, Anna was a relatively right-on old-school second-wave feminist with a bit of Marxism thrown in. She was also an assistant professor of history at the Central European University in Budapest, where she did her PhD and taught and researched law and social movements for over 10 years. I welcome Anna Lutfi to Savage Minds. When I learned about the case that you are representing of these parents who are taking the Department of Education to task for not protecting their children and abetting gender indoctrination is how so many people have been red pilled into believing what is not even provable, that's not even scientific. The way that we're having a discussion about the ideological implantation in schools, about something that was never brought to the surface, just as the GRA was never really brought to the surface for public debate. Can you talk to our listeners about how this was allowed to happen in the first place? Yeah, I mean, schools, obviously, there's a very special status that schools have, which is you know, twofold. One, it is where the young people of the country are routinely gathered <laughs> and they're a captive audience. So if you would like to inculcate a radical shift in thinking, in being, in what it means to be human, uh, there there will be, you know, that will be a, a target um, institution above all other institutions. And I mean, you know, obviously it's something of a cliche now that we, we routinely talk about totalitarianism <laughs> and we make these analogies with Nazism, Nazism, and then people feel embarrassed that they did that. And then, as you as you said earlier, you said, you know, if I may just use that analogy quickly, because you know nothing else comes to mind, and we feel embarrassed about it. But the fact of the matter is, uh, we shouldn't feel embarrassed at, at all. And um, those analogies are perfectly uh, appropriate. And when we were younger, we we all remember my generation being taught never again, never again, never again about the Holocaust. It was understood when I was growing up that you learned from from those lessons now if you if you if you talk about state overreach or civil liberties or freedom of expression or you know make analogies with totalitarian regimes even if you make those analogies with with historical insight and reading and 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 subtlety and nuance you'll be told that you're vulgar and cheap and this is a, a right-wing meme or a, a you know uh freedom of expression has been has been transformed into a right-wing meme um free speech you know it's it's funny it's silly so so um i say all that because obviously if we do take the lessons of the past seriously we know that targeting young people through various programs has been an important dimension of inculcating radical shifts in thinking about what it means to be a society and and more more importantly who is other uh, who is other to that society and who 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 lies outside uh, the confines of respectable society and who is it legitimate to imprison and and to target and to um 
to to sentence without fair process and who is it legitimate to kill the, the, those are the, um, the the radical paradigm shifts that turn a society from a, a seemingly liberal one where there is relative consensus and peace between populations and demographics within the borders into a war zone uh, where people are being disappeared in the night. You 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 talked about turf actually as a slogan uh, or a concept or a, or a word that should not be appearing in academic uh, or politically uh, formal parlance. Uh, but of course, it's another ring term. If you if you use the word turf, you are basically reducing the experiences of women uh, to um, this single word, and it becomes very difficult uh, to talk in public about, for example, the deep mortification of a Muslim woman uh, when placed in a position uh, where her faith and her doctrinal um, position and her modesty and her upbringing and her cultural norms are all turned on the head. You know, it becomes very difficult to empathize with that Muslim woman or to see that she has very, very grounded reasons for objecting to men in her, in her, in her single sex spaces, because you've used the word turf, which, which covers basically, you know, loudmouth women from the dominant culture, and it becomes okay to kind of demonize them. But then you never have to address the multifaceted nature of the women and their diversity uh, and their diverse reasons for objecting to this ideology. So this is a very radical thing. And because it's radical, it has to be uh, inculcated in young minds at an early age because it is totally paradigm shifting. There isn't really a culture in history in the world. Um, there isn't a secular culture or a religious uh, tradition that accepts the idea that men and women are not distinct categories and that they don't have profound meaning for how society is organized. So in order to transform that particular understanding of the world, you basically have to transform it, what it means to be a human being. And you need to do that from a very young age. So schools are an obvious, obvious starting point. Um, <clears throat> and, and that's why I think the institution of the school and education is really important in this in this battle, because actually, without targeting the schools, this it, this radical ideology will fail. It will fail because adults don't subscribe to it. So you have to inculcate it in very young minds, and you have to do it. You have to do it with great subtlety. Um, it isn't the case. Uh, if I look at the at the stories that have been brought to my attention by, may, may I say, many, 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 many parents. We are not talking tens. Okay, we are now talking hundreds um, and are and are representative of very, very different demographics in the United Kingdom. So that's another point uh, in terms of class, race, culture, religion, um, education, um, worldview and, and, and political uh, orientation. Um, these parents are describing very subtle processes of indoctr indoctrination. They are not necessarily describing, um, you know, a, a brutal jackboot on the faces of our children. We are, we, we, they're not, children are not, we have got some examples where the, where the teacher has been uh, um, heavy handed or a child has been confronted with a ridiculous proposition in respect of gender and has come home and told their parents and it's gone viral. You know, we know about Catgate in Rye College, Sussex, where a 13 year old simply simply put to her RSC teacher that you know, men and women are 
different and that's that you can't change sex and she was told that she was disgusting and that she had to move schools and she needed to ha have a re-education session and that she wasn't welcome in that you know okay that's that's the heavy-handed approach okay and we can all point to that the press were all over that because it was a really good example of you know the indoctrination of gender in our schools type of thing but 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 really when you look at the stories on balance it's much more about um, children just being given space to question that really that is the essence of the indo indoctrination program it is giving children space to question on the one hand I mean question what is another story but creating this very very safe space where, where children are safe uh, to question and then the other question is safe from what well the answer to that is from their parents so the school becomes a buffer zone where you know, you don't have to take seriously anything mummy and daddy say or anything that, you know, you know, the people that, you know, you go home to at the end of the day, that that that's a separate world. That is a totally separate world. And you must remember that what they say is because they're stuck in the old paradigm. OK, now we don't hold that against them. Granddad's probably a bit senile and grandma's probably got dementia and mummy's probably a fascist and daddy's probably a rapist, <laughs> you know. We, we don't hold it against them. They they probably voted Brexit, and they and they probably you know, um you know think that there's a fairy in the sky that looks after us all or whatever it is. But we we forgive them that. But just know that you don't have to be stuck in that world. You don't have to be. You can be free, and that that is the essence of these so-called uh, subjects that have been rolled out across our schools called um, different things over time. When I was a, when I was a, a secondary school student, it was called personal and social education and it was mostly about putting girls in different rooms from boys and talking about periods um and we had a little bit of discussion in our religious studies class about things like you know homosexuality funnily enough I think clause 28 was still good law but my religious um education teacher didn't seem to mind talking about homosexuality as a perfectly valid lifestyle in, in our classroom. So we had a little bit of exposure to, you know, sex and the body in these classes. But what's happening now, obviously, with religious, uh, sorry, with um, uh, <clears throat> personal, social health and economic education, PSHE, or relationships and sex education, as it's mandated by statute, what's going on in those subjects is, I think, a much more um, self-conscious uh, move to let the child know at whatever age that this school is a safe space from home and that <clears throat> sorry um, and that uh, the parents may have funny ideas but the school is the place where where true ideas uh, where truth is um, and 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 truth is is you know what you know where you're told um perhaps at home that there is a different way of thinking, then you have to you have to weigh that up with what you're being told at school. And obviously the school is the official version and the official version will be the one that is presented as the kind version of truth. Um, the progressive, the latest, most up to date, not not out of date version of truth. Uh, it will be the, um, the, the most sensitive to um, buzzwords like diversity, inclusion, uh, equality, um, you know, everybody having a say, everyone being part of the community. We're all good. We're all valid. We're all valued. Everybody's valued. So very, very positive uh, framing for the truth. 
uh, whereas the truth taken outside of the school context is probably misinformation. <laughs> so it's, it's fake truth. It's not it's not real. It's it's just what your <clears throat> your, your your the adults that are socially uh, responsible for your everyday care. It's, it's what they think. Uh, but that that's less less trustworthy. So for me, that's what RSHE is. It's a very subtle program of alienating children uh, from the idea that um, they are they belong uh, to a to a to a network of adults who have ideas about things and that will shape how they think. And these are their role models and these are people that they will have to take to task if they disagree with them. But <clears throat> but they are of that family. They are of that community. They are of that religious tradition. They are of that culture. Whereas nowadays you go to school and you're taught quite, quite, quite in quite a subtle way. Actually, you know, you come here to, to escape that. You're not of anywhere. You've got a you've got a unique identity. You're special. You're brilliant. It doesn't matter what your parents think. It doesn't matter what your grandparents think. It doesn't matter what your imam or your rabbi or your priest think. It doesn't matter what your church thinks. It doesn't matter what, um, <clears throat> you know, your your even your your friends think. It's it's the school is here to create this this cotton cotton uh, wool padding for you and protect protect you from from people that would 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 stop you questioning and then questioning well i mean with gender ideology that is i mean that is a very um that is the, for me the most insidious thing of all that that you have children who by and large i mean most children unless they have some serious uh, medical issues most children are are embarrassingly healthy i mean you look at children and you're so aware of your own failings as an adult human person uh you're you're you're, you're struck by the health of their skin the, the brightness of their eyes the keenness of their intelligence and curiosity their 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 energy their their, their strong robust immune systems ability to shake things off that have you like laid low for a week you look at the health of children natural health and then you think about an ideology that tells children to question that and say how can i imagine myself unhealthy how can i imagine myself stuck in this healthy body how can i imagine this healthy body is the biggest barrier that there is to my happiness to my well-being to my peace to my sense of 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 of, of self that i don't know who came up with that and why we got from the sexology of the 1950s, uh, which was, you know, obviously um, keen to try out ideas about the mutability of sex, uh, probably for just sheer medical curiosity and taking as its uh, experimental subjects people with nobody and no one to care about, um, you know, rent boys and other sex workers. Um, vulnerable people, people with drug substance abuse issues, and maybe people with sexual, um, sexually disturbed histories. Uh, th they took those uh, largely adult people and made uh, a series of, of experiments to try and um, test the, the mutability of sex. And we had those uh, horrific John Hopkins University um, experiments, which your listeners may know about, um, on, on mainly uh, homosexual men. But how would how on earth we got from that niche area of experimental surgery um, to this rollout across our schools in the Western world of of telling children that, you know, health is a myth 
health is a is a deceptive thing you know you you think you're all right with your two arms and your two legs and your two eyes and your growing breasts or your your growing uh you know penis or your growing facial hair or your 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 menstrual cycle beginning you know you think that's all normal because you know your parents will have told you oh it's normal that's what adolescence is all about um but you're to treat it as a kind of hot hell you know I've, I've read rshe materials sorry rse materials where 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 puberty is continuously presented as a hell it is um torturous it's uh embarrassing it smells it sticks out uh, it's the reason you don't want to be seen it's the reason you don't want to be heard it's the reason you don't want to be in public it's the reason you don't want it to happen you want it to stop it, I, I've seen that in black and white in color uh, in cartoon form in 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 these materials that, that that puberty is a horror it's a hell and of course if you present it like that it stops being emblematic of health but of course puberty is healthy I mean it's 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 a sign of a healthy person morphing from 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 child from a child into an adult and it's a transitionary important transitional period that in most traditional cultures is is accompanied by very profound rituals of initiation into manhood and womanhood and i just think you know where the if people ask me and i have been asked where does it come from this attempt to <clears throat> to take children and, and, and teach them that, you know, they come to school to leave behind the world that they knew and to unlearn their idea that they are healthy, to unlearn the idea that they are happy, um, you know, and it's not confined to gender ideology. It will move. It will move. It's already moving. We're going to have a situation where children are routinely taught that, you know, they're depressed, they have anxiety, they mm, contemplate suicide, um, and and these are things that the school is aware of and the school is there to help them. Um, and, you know, the idea that you're healthy mentally and physically is, is going to be something that is actually rather marginalised. You could become a pariah, I think, if you say you're fine <clears throat> in our current paradigm. So for me, gender is this gateway to teaching young people that nothing is to be taken for granted and that the, the state primarily is the place where they will uh, be provided with the resources that they need uh, in order to function um, as uh, dependents in a society that values dependency over independence and ill health over health. And, um, and possibly also there is some agenda to render the meaning of male and female um, less less um, profound than it has been historically, but to what end, I cannot tell. I, I know that some thinkers are exploring, you know, biotech and, you know, the surrogacy industry. And, uh, you know, there is obviously a fascination in our culture with, the, with, with what technology can achieve over and above the, the ordinary human person. And so reproduction is going to be increasingly presented as something that is achieved without the need for men and women procreating and without the need for women getting pregnant. So if if that is um, a radical sell as to how sophisticated our biotechnological capacities are, then I can understand why you would want a counter narrative that undersells the fact of human and uh, maleness and femaleness. You know, that that might be one way in which technology is promoted by devaluing uh, the the natural procreative capacities of men and women and their distinct 
natures, physical natures and, and possibly mental natures. Um, but, you know, this is all very broad, isn't it? I mean, I, I, uh, all I can say is, you know, going back to the sort of legal position that when people are in trouble and they want legal assistance, then as a lawyer, you have to say, right, what's the trouble and how can it be remedied? Uh, and <clears throat> the Bad Law Project is supporting parents who've come to us from all over the country. And we're trying to um, deal with the sheer volume uh, of these parents. And hopefully uh, once um, the, the the case is um, uh, catalogued, if you will, and we understand exactly the, the diverse uh, uh, um, stories that we have and what they all have in common, uh, and we can we can proceed with our complaint, uh, which is to alert the Department for Education uh, to the fact that this is all avoidable because we have good laws in the United Kingdom against political indoctrination. I mean, for me, that that seems to be the the, the, the simplest way of dealing with this problem because it also speaks to other issues, and it's not just the gender ideology that people are upset about. It's about generally feeling as parents that they're not actually value respected or included in conversations with their own children about about anything I, it, you know there's lots of parents I, I I know who who talk to me about being you know treated as if they're hardly um you know they're just the people that provide the the roof over the child's head when it sleeps but their responsibility ends sort of with dinner on the table um, and parents feel that acutely. And I know in Scotland, that's been a huge culture war with, um, you know, the Scottish National Party has been quite clear that for them, you know, parents are secondary to the state and they, you know, they have all sorts of schemes like, you know, state appointed uh, persons to, to, to represent children in addition to their parents. Or um, even I think it was the education minister said famously i forget her name but she famously said something about um uh parents too you know parents are important too <laughs> you know it's <laughs> giving giving them giving you know giving the bestowing upon them you know her, her, her recognition that they do play some role in a child's life so 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 we do have laws in in the united kingdom we have we have the uh, education act 1996 which states that you cannot um, present information to a child <clears throat> in a partisan way without, you know, treating a subject, and I would say a particularly a, cont a very contentious subject such as gender identity, you, you can't present that without some sort of address, um, addressing of the of the debate around it and 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 placing, you know, other views um, in in dialogue with 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 the issue so the child has the benefit of understanding that this is something that isn't just taken for granted in society it is a, a debate that rages around their heads <clears throat> and that might be appropriate um for, for for something like the referendum on the european union which we did not see in schools what we saw as teachers you know telling children that uh, anybody who votes brexit is thick my my stepdaughter was told that um uh, you know that uh, people who, um, who 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 voted Republican in the United States are, you know, thick. I mean, we we do have teachers taking that uh, into their own hands, but but the reason they can do it is because they're never given training. They're given endless equality, diversity, and inclusion training from people like Stonewall, Mermaids, and you and you name it. Uh, 
but they they're not given training in in what indoctrination might look like they're not given training on the, the the dangers of indoctrination looking at the lessons of history and how important it is to recognize a debate in a in a society when you see one so if you know that there are people who who are having a debate about something you don't in the classroom present it as well one side is thick and the other side is right you you can't do that because you don't you don't know what demographics you're the children are drawn from and uh, you're being highly disrespectful to half of the classroom and their parents because they are coming from you know the side that you've just insulted and 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 so even on that diplomatic level that shouldn't be happening uh, in classrooms but politically it shouldn't be happening democratically it shouldn't be happening if there is a debate and i think we can safely say that the gender uh, identity issue has become probably the most raging debate in in British society, above all other debates, I would say, perhaps. Um, I mean, ULES is another that's starting to take over and, and environmental policies and the impact that they might have on lower income families. But but the gender thing, I think it's because it's such, such a paradigm shifting concept, there are no there are no real differences between men and women or that they're, um, they're interchangeable categories and and that you know, women who have you know requests for privacy are white supremacy. I mean, that, that's such a radical thing to assert that I think most people have strong opinions about it, one way or t'other in this in this society. And so it it's absolutely unacceptable that schools would be pushing uh, this particular idea that men and women are interchangeable; they're not distinct categories on very young people without any attention at all to the strong arguments that are being made in the society as to why that is um, not true and is harmful. And I would say that if you really, as a school, feel like you can't handle the debate because it's too hot, uh, maybe you have a trans-identified teacher in the school, maybe you have you know 50% of the kids are saying they're pansexual or you know non-binary well then leave it out don't I mean it's not mandated to teach you know gender identity I mean we've got this perversion of the Equality Act which has transformed gender reassignment uh, under our noses by policy shift inculcated in diversity inclusion and equality policies over time in schools we've got these these ideas that gender reassignment actually just means gender identity and that anybody can have a gender identity from the from the womb upwards um this has been filtered into schools so now you know you do have uh people being told that if you're teaching equality diversity inclusion in schools you've got to teach about gender identity to these children um, just in the same way that if you have children who've got two mummies or two daddies, then it's important to tell the children that that's absolutely fine. And so it's been rolled in, uh, but there isn't really in law something called gender identity and certainly doesn't apply to children, no matter what anybody says. That was not the intention of Parliament, that gender reassignment <clears throat> was, a, was a protected characteristic um, that would be applicable at any point to people under the age of 18. That is not a true reading of what the law says. It's not Parliament's intention, which is the highest authority in, in our legal system. And so the idea that people would be pushing the, the, the child as a bearer of this protected characteristic of, of gender is, is a nonsense. And I would say that schools are perfectly entitled to leave the bloody damn thing alone and say, we're not even going to get, we're not going to talk about this issue in our school. Okay, because it's too contentious and it creates too many difficult 
situations. Uh, in our school, we work on the presumption that there are girls and boys. These are the girls' facilities and those are the boys' facilities. End of. Uh, but they won't do it. They won't do it because third sector groups are telling them that that's against the law. And they don't feel they have the backup from the Department for Education, which has pushed these third sector groups into schools in the first place. So, so ultimately, I think the, um, the responsibility for the harm in our schools lies with the, you know, the public sector um, department of government that is, um, has either played possum and stayed quiet about um, the ideology, about its presence in our schools and about the absolute clear cut harm that it's doing to young people mentally and physically. It stayed quiet or it has actively, proactively promoted these organisations whose mission it is, is to tell the country that the law backs their position, which it clearly does not. I say it doesn't. And that is the position I will continue to defend no matter who who, who confronts me and says, no, the law says you know, a four-year-old can be a transsexual. I say, no, it doesn't. And I say the law pr protects children against political indoctrination precisely because of the lessons of history. And I will continue to defend that, that position in law. What you've just discussed in terms of the schools, what strikes me most and what is in fact the impetus for my involvement in this over the past 11 years has been the ideological effects on logic, not women's and girls' rights at number one space. That is there and that's very important. But what affects everyone within society, children and adults, is the ability to call something as it is. Gender ideology seems to have been haplessly encoded into law, even though it's not encoded into law as ideology, it's encoded into law as an identity. That slippage point seems to be what we're battling against here. And, and that we have so many adults willing to cave to it because everyone has a brother, a sister, my friend's son's teacher. My son's teacher is trans, he tells me, before he unfriended me. As if my pointing to human sexual but dimorphism and the reality of sex bodies should be an affront to someone. Because once upon a time, transsexuals knew that they weren't ever, ever changing sex. That shark has been jumped. Can you walk us through how this ideology has been encoded into law as some kind of quasi-truth, even though it's not? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I, I actually don't think it has been encoded into law. And that, that is what really scares me, actually, because um, there, there has been this attempt to rewrite the law. We've, we've got, for, what, for better or for worse, we've got something called the Equality Act. Um, and this has set out these protected characteristics, which you can't discriminate on the basis of. And one of them is gender reassignment. Now, uh, equality, diversity and inclusion training across the country, whether it's the private sector or the public sector, tends to over egg the uh, protected characteristic of gender reassignment. So all the other gen all the other protected characteristics are sort of um, mumbled that <laughs> so you have. Cursory references to sex and race and religion. Uh, but then there's this gender is always loudly proclaimed clearly as the defining protected characteristic on the basis of which no one should ever discriminate ever. Um, and there's lots of color and lots of noise. And of course, LGBT is, a, is, a, is an incredibly powerful uh, device 
Um, I don't even know if it's technically an acronym, given that we don't know what it stands for, but um, it is the use of letters in place of actual language to push the idea that there is this protected characteristic and we call it LGBTQIA+, and we say it's LGBTQIA+, rights month, and it's pride month, and it's rainbow lanyard time, which seems to now have extended from one day a year to the entire year. Um, so, so people don't even really need a, a, an in-depth understanding of what the law says about who is protected and why. I mean, the obvious response from anybody who's got a smattering of understanding of what the rule of law means is that everybody is protected under the law. There is no such thing as protected groups. There just isn't. The Equality Act is clumsily organized, so it appears that way. For example, if I say to you, Julian, you know, race is a protected characteristic, your mind might automatically move to a, a, a thinking about the sort of racial groups that are vulnerable in Italian society at the moment. You know, and you might have a smattering of groups in your mind of people that maybe, you know, refugees or, you know, people of African origin or people with um, gypsy, uh, of a gypsy extraction or, or Roma extraction, I, I should say. Um, uh, you know, and these are groups. And then you say, well, they're protected under the law. Well, well in, in the UK Equality Act, that's, that's, a that's a misreading that race, everyone has a race, right? So under the law, I can't make disparaging remarks about Italians. I can't make disparaging remarks about Americans or, you know, Irish people. It's it's not it's not about skin color, uh, you know, darker skin color or, you know, people who are recently arrived to the United Kingdom. It's everybody. Everyone has a race, same as everybody has a sex. You can't discriminate against a man on the basis that he's a man. You can't discriminate against a heterosexual on the basis that he's heterosexual or she's heterosexual because sexual orientation is a protected characteristic. That's not what people hear. They hear sexual orientation and they think gay people, right? So, so already you have a you know you have a a selling of the Equality Act as the protection of distinct groups in society who, who held protections that others do not have, which already creates a resentment of, well, why don't we get protected? You know, you know, I'm a white working class person, you know, I, I have rights, why am I not considered to be? So that, that feeds ideologically an idea that there are groups in society that are protected and are special, but that is not what the law actually says. It just lends itself to that misinterpretation. Um, but with gender reassignment, uh, and perhaps also the protected characteristic of maternity. There are um, perhaps uh, groups of people um, who aren't covered by that. So not everybody can say I have gender reassignment and not everybody can say I have maternity protections as a pregnant woman. So there, there are exceptions, but gender reassignment and, and gender reassignment is one of the exceptions. Uh, but the way it's been rewritten into policies by the diversity and inclusion industry um, is to suggest that it is this uh, absolutely um, taken for granted process whereby somebody simply isn't uh, the sex that they were born. And that has been uh, pushed and pushed and pushed as the legal reading of what gender reassignment means at law. Of course, that's not what it means. I mean, you know, Again, if 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 people can take cases to court and there is a, ju a judicial decision that seems to weigh on the side of an interpretation of the law that a child can be a transsexual, 
right? And, and can be seen to be protected by having the, the characteristic of gender reassignment by virtue of the fact that the child has, has said, I am not a boy, I want to be a girl, or I am not a girl, I want to be a boy. Um, and a, ju a judge decides that there is some some validity to that to this to the extent that this child is is gender reassigned for the purposes of the judicial decision then you could make the argument that the law tells us that children can have the protected uh, characteristic of gender reassignment but i just say no they can't they cannot that is not what was intended when the gender when the gender reassignment protected characteristic was put into law and when the um, Gender Recognition Act was drafted, and when the uh, you know when the first sort of uh, public discussions about um, famous transsexuals started to enter the mainstream, um, you know people that had you know married uh, had changed sex and married, and you know there's a famous case. Um, which I'll have to actually look up because it's escaped me now. But there was an early case where um, a famous transsexual uh, man to woman married um, a wealthy man. And there were all sorts of debates when they divorced about whether the marriage was consummated and so on and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I think that 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 case opened up a sort of mainstream discussion about the concept of gender reassignment. But it's very adult conversation. And it's a, an adult conversation for an for an adult world, and and the the inclusion of children into that conversation has been not by law, or by real um, amendments to law, or by 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 a, a national conversation that has resulted in changes to the law. Uh, the conversation has been changed to include children by virtue of stealth policy by stealth, where policies have just pushed and pushed and pushed and said this is what the law says, this is what the law means, this is what the law tells you you must do if you want to be a non-discriminating school or a non-discriminating employer. And um, and that's not, I, as far as I'm concerned, these policies aren't worth the paper they're written on. There's too many of them. They change every second. The language is impenetrable. Um, particularly in respect of gender, we have a language that is out of control now. I mean, you know, people are just, just using just making noises and saying that they are legal concepts you know, <laughs> like, you know uh, uh, I mean I, we, we are all familiar with the, the ludicrousness of, 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 of these terms like non-binary and pansexual and uh, a, a, a gender and uh, you know to, to spirit we, we're, we're aware of that but but um, but they are actually being sort of used as legal legally um, grounded uh, uh, protected characteristics which you know which means that we are living in a society where you can make protected characteristics up on the hoof and demand that they be protected. So, so I could say, for example, to my employer that it doesn't matter that the Equality Act doesn't mention my identity, which is to scream every five minutes that I love Nietzsche. Um, <laughs> if, 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 if that is how I identify, you're going to have to protect it. And I'm going to and my work colleagues will have to accept it. Because it is my identity, it's, you know. Well, I had a running joke on Twitter recently where I started to push my zodiac because I come from a long line of oppressed Scorpios. <laughs> and I really wish that the Equality Act would include us as an oppressed group. And I'm 
joking because how on earth did gender identity ever make it into a discussion within parliament? And I say this seriously because I'm a little tired and not because I'm a woman. <laughs> it's because I've worked in the developing world mm. and these people think they're oppressed. Try toting 20 liters of water on your head all day, every day, because those are... Yes, it's complete self-indulgence, yeah. I begin to really just wonder how this absurdity was not observed years ago by everyone in, let's say, in Parliament, everyone within the public sector and what is called the third sector, where you have this non-elected body that is given the kind of powers, backdoor powers, to get things passed, to get things done outside of the gender industry. The more I investigate the gender lobby, there's a lot of astroturfing here as well, because the very nature of people believing that gender is a somatic reality, uh, it's, it's, that's false. It's provably false. I've interviewed Cordelia Fine. I've had Gina Rippon on the show. There is no such thing as a transgender brain. When we start to look at the science and pick it apart, the malfeasance within medicine and also in law, because in law, people were giving it a pass thinking, oh, this is like a comet, once in a blue moon type of thing. And here we are with a full onslaught of societal admissions of this kind of quote unquote identity where people are now being medicalized to death and society is being forced to be the mirror. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, there are so many questions that aren't being asked. I mean, it is... It's one word, is, is, well, it's two words, Anna, <laughs> gender identity, right? One word if you're just going to stick with gender. And yet there are so many questions, and yet we're supposed to just accept this word, gender, um, as something that we, we all agree uh, what it refers to and what it means and why it's with us, and that it's, we've got to accept that it's uh, firmly uh, embedded in our legal system. Uh, and, I, you know, I don't accept any of those things. I don't accept that it's with us. I think it is content, contentiously imposed on us. And many people are unhappy about that. I don't accept that it's embedded in our legal system. I, I say it has attempted to find a place within our legal system and rather unsuccessfully, actually. Um, and I don't think it will be sustainable. I think it will be pushed out and pushed back. Um, and we will, we will retain sex because sex is true and truth will win, a truth without. But in the meantime, whilst this, this, this war rages, which is a war of, 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 of semantics, it's about creating linguistic um, 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 coercions with which people must comply. Otherwise they uh, betray um, their unsound political credentials. It's a sort of mechanism for teasing out people uh, that might be pro problems or troublemakers down the road. I mean, it's a very effective tool, isn't it? You know, if you wanted to assess who is um, um, ideally placed to question political authority, you put out the most absurd proposition that you can come up with and then you see who goes along with it. And those people will obviously be uh, easy pickings for an authoritarian regime because they won't question anything. I don't believe, by the way, that people who accept gender in the uh, you know, on the surface actually do. I personally believe 
that nobody on this earth accepts it, including people who identify one way or the other as transgender. I don't think they believe that. I don't think they think it. I don't think they think it's true. I really don't. I really don't. I don't think the surgeons who perform the operations believe it. I don't think the lobbyists believe it. I don't think the politicians believe it. I don't think the activists believe it. But it serves a purpose. It may serve a purpose uh, from a political perspective of you know, gaslighting and demoralizing a population by forcing them to accept things that are absurd. Because once you've done that, you can put anything on them and they won't, how can they, you know, how can one keep fighting nonsense? It's, you just let it wash over you like a tide, don't you? Um, and it also serves to, to, to channel male rage. Um, and I think, you know, the idea that, um, that this is really a debate about what a woman is, is, is actually, again, a bit of a distraction. It's a debate about what men are. And what we should be asking as a society is why are men so angry with women? Uh, why are they, um, you know, on fire with rage against women, whether it be incels or uh, whether it be, you know, porn addiction or whether it be violent crimes or whether it be putting on an attire and saying, I am a she and going into a female changing space, or whether it be attacking women who speak out publicly uh, on behalf of women and girls, we need to ask ourselves, what is a man and why is he doing that? You know, or what sort of man does that? Because lots of men are actually quite disturbed by the whole gender uh, absurdity. And, and therefore we are being pointed to a sector of the male population that is acting out as it were, and um, we should be having conversations about what, why, why they're doing that and what this is all about. So there are many, many questions, uh, but we're not allowed to have those conversations. I think for me, the most profound question that I have is why are men identifying as women in midlife, often after having successful careers as sportsmen or military men? And mm -hmm. uh, IT. Having had IT, having had wives and children, um, sometimes quite considerable uh, numbers of children. Um, and then they turn around and say they're, they're, they're women in, in their late 40s, 50s. What, roughly the, the time we expect a man to have what's known as the midlife crisis. And we don't see women doing that. So that for me, as a sociologist, somebody with a basic sociological sort of academic um, orientation towards the unit of analysis. When you say gender, you say, okay, let's have a look at this trans thing, right? We've got men in their 50s transitioning away and uh, throwing their families under the bus and uh, it, you know, asking the whole of the world to forget their entire life to, to date and accept this new paradigm. Um, we do not have, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, we do not have, to my knowledge, a single middle-aged woman with a with a husband and children who has done similar, I can't think of one. I mean, if we if you can point me to one woman who in her fifties said, "I am now a man," please tell me. And uh, yes, the exception is the is is the exception that proves the rule. I would say, if you can find me one, I would say my my point stands that we are not seeing an epidemic of middle aged women saying they're men after lives lived with husbands and children and. Um, uh, or, or identified pre previously as so-called cis. What we do see is epidemic numbers of teenage girls. And I would say that while there may be boys 
who go uh, through surgery uh, in their teens. Again, very few, very, very few. It is girls who are rushing to the surgeon's knife in their droves in their teenage years. So we already have a huge question to resolve as a society. Why are men doing this in their 50s and women, girls rather, doing this in their teens? We have to ask ourselves, what is what is the discrepancy here? Why is it different? Again, you can't if you accept that men and women are the same. And they're, you know, you're not allowed to ask sociologically driven questions such as, you know, I'm going to look at adolescent girls versus middle-aged men. You've already had your unit of analysis stripped from you. Um, and you can't, you can't ask the question. So, you know, I would say, even if somebody tells me that the law protects this category, and I say it does not, you've been fooled, you've been duped by policy wonks, writing endless versions of gender identity into policy and guidance, and distributing it in such voluminous quantities that you think it's the law, and because nobody talks about the law and the law is silent, you think the law doesn't exist. It's not true. This thing isn't lawful and it's not legal. It's not embedded in our law the way you think it is. But even if we accept that, even if we do, and we say gender identity is this solid legal category, we still don't know what it means and we need to know. Judges need to know. Barristers need to know. Solicitors need to know. Members of the public need to know. Teachers need to know. Nurses and doctors need to know. And we must have that conversation. And it, 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 if it doesn't happen, then I'm afraid our whole society will be become very marginal in the world. I mean, the West is already you know, clearly becoming a marginal entity compared with other hegemonic powers that are growing in strength. This issue will be determinant of whether or not we can actually have a place in the world uh, and dialogue and competition with other world powers. Because as long as this issue is not addressed, we will continue to decline into insignificance. It is a marker of our decline and our decadence that we are pushing this issue without having a conversation about what it means, because it is paving the way for a society in which things don't have any meaning and therefore everybody's lost interest in having conversations about what matters and that such a such a society cannot cannot be a model for anybody in the world anyone in the future i mean it, we will just we will just become something that people will go on holiday to to laugh at you know like a freak a sort of freak society you know i can imagine people from you know Peru or Nigeria or <laughs> um, uh, places where they, they just don't have to worry about such things. <laughs> Coming over and jolly good laugh at our expense. <laughs> you're listening to Savage Minds and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now back to our show. We need sociological studies to look at why misogyny has become so entrenched. Sure, on the political level, women can vote, we can now sign contracts, we can have credit cards, we can take out loans, all these things. But the misogyny hasn't changed, and, and, and I would even argue that it's, it's pathological worse. now. It's pathological. 
it was it it was a it was a set of societal arrangements previously which which gave women and men different roles and some of those roles were hierarchically organized in victorian society for example but it's but that's that wasn't pathological um, misogyny i wouldn't i wouldn't call it that i would just say it was a, a sort of you know um a, a patriarchal arrangement that um, one can have conversations about how it worked and how it didn't work and how it had to change and why it had to change and uh, the, the sorts of debates that it threw up about the right to vote. I mean, obviously, it's really complicated because no, nobody had the bloody right to vote, really. Um, it, it, you know, we moved qu quite quickly from feudal to industrial um, societies, which, 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 which left most people disenfranchised. So it's not quite true to say men had the vote and women didn't. But um, to the extent that women were um, forcibly excluded from the privileges of citizenship, well, that really didn't happen until the 19th century with the, the, the creation of the modern nation state. Um, but I wouldn't say it was pathological. I would say there were strategic arrangements in mind about the separation of the of the family and the private sphere from the public sphere of work and politics that were behind those strategic legal arrangements. And then women had to negotiate their way in. Um, but what we have now is pathological. It's, it's utterly pathological. There is no strategy behind what transgenderist activists want, other than to disrupt people and to attack females that 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 is the sole purpose of it it doesn't have any other any other uh, raison d'etre than to disrupt and disturb women and girls that that that's its sole sole aim but when i see publications like diva that have been pushing this for so many years i am aghast why on earth would britain's like it's called the number one lesbian magazine. I don't know what its readership <laughs> is today. Yeah. Um, I believe the original publisher was Linda Riley. Uh, uh, why yes. on earth a lesbian magazine would be doing this, telling us that we need to, at the, the events that they would hold, we need to include men in them because they're women. And that really blew my mind. I used to do, I don't know if you ever attended South Bank surfing events, but that was pushed as well within the yeah. groups. Well, you know, this is a this is a personal observation. I, I look, I have to, you know, be, I, I'm professionally. I deal with you know certain questions um, about how the law works, but obviously, I've got my own opinions about what sociologically and culturally is going on. I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm a historian by by training, and you know, I've always been immersed in the humanities and social sciences uh, in academia. So I don't, I can't tear that hat off easily and just stick to my legal hat and also as you as you as you've been talking as as, as a lesbian I'm also gay and I <clears throat> uh I you know I I can't shed that either that you know it's a, a way of being in the world isn't it um and what you're saying is why are these lesbian magazines and why are these um you know sort of ostensibly uh, advocate groups on behalf of women why are they kowtowing to this or capitulating to that I mean it's, that's that's a conversation that women need to have I you know we I think men need to have a conversation about what they're so angry about right let let's get let's get them in a room talking about that why are they putting on wigs and um screaming it's a very strange thing and they need to talk about why they're doing it why are some men castrating themselves let's talk about that right um you know, because castration is a very interesting thing and it has a history and, uh, you know, castrated men have always had a role in different kinds of societies, which, you know, maybe 
there is something going on with male castration right now that we need to have a conversation about. But I, I can't say that I've got much to contribute to why men are so angry with women because I don't know and I can't put myself in the position of a really, really angry man in his 20s who wants death to be visited in the most heinous way and sexual violence upon J.K. Rowling. I mean, I cannot get into his head. However, I think I can get closer to the editor of Diva. And what I would say about that is women have to have a look in the mirror and have a good old conversation with themselves about why it is that um, they, uh, they are willing, so very willing to be audiences to male exhibitionism. And if, you know, and there is no, actually there is no um, law of the universe that says a lesbian or a feminist or a woman's advocate is going to be more um, immune from that kind of behavior than your stereotypical housewife, stay at home, mother of three, okay? That I just don't think that women are immune to um, the, the sort of supportive role that they like to appoint themselves in terms of facilitating male exhibitionism. The desire for, for, for many men to be at the center of a drama where women are the audience. I mean, you know, we had flashes in the 70s and 80s. I was told to avoid the man in the raincoat at the bottom of the street on my way to school. Casey flashed his penis at me. Well, that uh, then there were the people who would help call the, you know, the house landline and breathe heavily over the phone when you picked the phone up. And you were supposed to put the phone down in a total shock. You were supposed to run across the road when you saw the flasher and avoid eye contact with him and be very, very, very nervous. That's the aim of it, right? Exhibitionism is to render the audience slightly uncomfortable. And women want to participate in that. Um, they participate in it by being cowed, by being unnerved by it, by, 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 by sort of, you know, um, uh, wanting to talk about it, um, giving it a place in society. And then the, the, the worst version of that is Diva magazine saying, you know, let's participate in it. You, you have a version of this across the board. You know, men want to watch pornography, then their partners are more likely to watch it with them, even if they don't want to. Men want to dress up in fetish gear or have some sort of fetish element to their sexual lives. And women will go along with it, even if they don't want to. You know, uh, there are so many ways in which men, you know, want to do something out of sheer sexual excitability and they expect women to go along with it. And women do. They do. They say things like, you know, oh, you know, uh, she 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 is a wonderful woman about a man, you know, because they want to participate in that man's you know, sensibility. When I was a lesbian in the in the 90s, you know, I was all this stuff about HIV and AIDS. Um, that was going on. And I mean, looking back, I think it's clear that actually this was a disease that targeted, you know, as particularly vulnerable demographics, you know, very, very promiscuous men, often in the gay scene. Um, and it didn't have a huge applicability. We were told at the time that it would strike everybody in the same way. But we were told at the time that it had, it, you know, but we were told at the time it had it would strike everyone in the same way. But it it didn't, looking back, have huge applicability to, for example, gay women like myself. Um, I didn't, I don't think I was, and I I don't think, looking back, I was at any risk of contracting HIV 
um, through the sort of sexual uh, practices that lesbians were engaged in in the in the 90s. And, and certainly yeah, but there was a big focus to teach lesbians to use dental dams. Yes. I remember that. Yes, dental remember dams. That? Yes, dental dams. <laughs> I remember that very well. And, and I remember thinking, you know, why are we, you know, there is clearly not the death toll uh, within the lesbian world that you're seeing in the gay male world. I mean, that was just, again, you know, it's like, you know, midlife men identifying as women, no middle-aged women identifying as men, right? So we have a discrepancy there. Similarly with AIDS, it was clearly... Um, a, 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 a medical crisis that didn't have the same applicability to lesbian women, right? To lesbians. So, 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 why was it then the the why was it then pushed in this way as if it was the burden of lesbians to carry? It was the grief that lesbians felt. It was the it was it was their issue. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a bit of solidarity. And of course, you know, many many lesbians in the '90s had had close friendships with with men myself included that that were affected and who died um but but where is the equivalent female issue i mean where is the lesbian issue that the men that the, the gay men are weeping over you know have we got have we got the stats on alcohol abuse by lesbians of my generation you know and the way in which alcohol has wreaked havoc in their lives um, and why that might be something to do with their sexuality. Um, do, do we have the stats on that? Has anyone ever cared to talk about it? Has anyone ever felt grief about the kinds of pain that do come with choosing a lesbian lifestyle, particularly of, for my generation of women? But even now, I would say there's a certain pain that comes with it. You don't just dance your rainbow way through the fields of lesbianism. You know, it, it it's not a sexual pleasure as such. It is a lifestyle choice that comes with consequences. So, you know, those are the things that I think we don't hear about. And men certainly don't give a damn and gay men even less so. I think we don't have we don't have equity there. There isn't, um, a, a, you know, a, a way in which women's causes or women's problems or women's issues or women's pain or women's historical experiences are felt by a male audience uh, or performed as if they're felt in the same way that women are prepared to feel the pain of men. And they will take that pain and they will rush into the street and say, and cut their faces and tear their hair and say, the poor men, the poor men, the poor men. This is what the editor of Diva is doing. She's, she's, she's enacting her role as the, you know, the tragic, uh, you know, Greek, um mother whose son has been killed in war you know and um there isn't an equivalent the other way you know men don't feel the pain that women feel um about something that affects exclusively or predominantly women um and i i think we need to just either accept it or we need to address it but we can't just you know continually be surprised that women will fight to the death on the, for the right of men to be exhibitionists and take centre stage. It's quite astonishing to me to see the amount of pushback I got. I even submitted an article after I ran my first piece in Counterpunch. I wanted to do something just for this lesbian publication. I sent it to the editor of Diva at the time. Ooh, that reject. I should have kept that rejection letter, but I didn't. <laughs> um, I've had really? to shift email twice since. But it, it's phenomenal how lesbians in this day and age will go out of their way 
to lend a shoulder to these men. Now, I think this is all constructed bullshit. I don't think these men suffer. I'm sorry. And I'm not talking about gender dysphoria. I'm talking about that people don't see you as the way you want to be seen. Really? grow a pair. I mean, I, I just can't, I can't believe that this is where we are. I preface this with, I think this is all political sideshow. I think that it's a perfect way to take your eyes off the fact that Europeans are struggling economically to make it through winter because of something happening nearby. Yes, absolutely. Yes, I think, yes. Let's talk about what is driving people, Syria, to certain countries and what we did in places like Syria to create havoc, death, the biggest mass immigration in history since the Second World War, and some would even argue greater. Now, we want to talk about leftism, and there is even problems amongst the feminists and those those wars we see online about who's the better leftist of all of us, who wants to kick out Kelly J. King because she allows all women at her events, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just thinking, wait a sec. We are living in a very dangerous moment on the verge of nuclear war, and we've got Sean Penn telling us he's not afraid of it. Oh, my effing God. Like, I just can't even believe some days when I wake up. I have to do this work in media, but I swear some days I wish I were a teacher. Just <laughs> oh, reading wow. stories, not transgender stories, but you yeah. know, reading stories to children about a bear because this is all a side circus. Yet we have these men who are convincing politicians, and you see this, politicians will stand in front of parliament and say they have higher suicide rates, proof, because mm. We have had the proof uncovered. We have had many studies that look at this that have in fact debunked the rhetoric. There's no trans brain. This, the actual statistics for suicide ideation are quite high in the UK for teenage girls. No one wants to discuss the reality. We want to discuss fictions and reaffirming someone's identity. And this is so crazy to me because Anna, at the end of the day, you, you also come from a background. You have family that comes from other parts outside of the UK. We are yeah. aware what immigration does on a good yeah. day to a middle-class family. Like my father, we mm -hmm. moved from Canada to the United States because he took a position as a professor in a dental school. He was a periodontist. We're now debating the very parameters of science that you couldn't finish your GCSE without? I mean, seriously? And we have parliamentarians standing in front of their peers saying that humans are not sexually dimorphic? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, you've got, and you've got people coming into the country from places and you're saying, you know, it is, it is, it is uh, important to, uh, you know, accommodate these people, welcome these people, give these people what they need. Um, and, you know, some people are saying, well, you know, hang on, let's have a conversation about numbers, let's have a conversation about resources, all of that. But, you know, it all gets flagged as far right. But let's suppose, you know, there is total consensus that we want these you know, people coming from all these different places and be welcomed in the United Kingdom. Well, how on earth is this ideology supposed to help, really? I mean, are we going to have a conversation about this ideology and its impact, psychological impact? on people from different parts of the world where this is culturally unacceptable, unacceptable. And I'm not just talking about the Muslim world. I'm talking about Ukrainians, for example. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know, Eastern Europeans are not, you know, 
given by and large uh, to a um, woke <laughs> rendition of reality um, for all sorts of reasons. And I'm not going to go into them now, but someone who spent you know, over 15 years living, researching and being part of an Eastern European landscape and studying the history of that of that of that region. I mean, I, I know I know what it means when Poles, Bulgarians, Romanians, Ukrainians, Russians come to a place like the UK, they are going to bring with them attitudes that are not considered progressive. And um, then you have people from, you know, for example, religious traditions like Islam and Judaism coming from countries like Eritrea and you, know, you have conservative Christians, many of whom are, are so-called BAME, Black minority ethnic groups. Uh, and, and, you know, you're saying we want to have this diverse multicultural society, but we're going to impose this ideology on everybody. Um, and, and you haven't had the conversation about how utterly incompatible it is. It's, you know, people on the right might say, oh, people come here who've got incompatible cultures with our own. Um, but you could twist it and say, actually, that, that, that certain woke elements of, 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 of doctrine are being imposed on immigrants who come here um, in ways that are practically racist, actually. Mm -hmm. Practically mm -hmm. racist. If you, if you tell a, a, a child that, you know, that their mother and father have nonsensical ideas about male and female being separate categories. Um, and that child, you know, learns at school that mummy and daddy are stupid because mummy and daddy come from a country or a culture or a religion, which is backward. I mean, how is that not practically racist policy in action? I mean, you know. well, how are these new immigrants who many of whom do not speak English very well, how are they supposed to understand the signage? for yeah. pap smears the yeah. cervix havers really cervix yeah. havers and i pointed this out when the <laughs> campaign first launched i thought well you you guys you know this this group is touting itself as being progressive and leftist there's nothing leftist or progressive when you annex the rights of people who will not understand this language obviously well, the left has the left has abandoned its its own. I mean, you know, if you were talking about marriage the other day, I mean, when I, when I was when I was you know embedded in the hard left of politics, it was it was quite standard for marriage to be critiqued as part of a genuine Marxist tradition of criticizing private property and bourgeois institutions. Marriage was being a you know, prime example of a bourgeois institution. And therefore the gay liberation movement in the 60s and 70s, which, which, was, which emerged from various sort of left-wing Marxist student movement traditions in Britain anyway, that was, that was firmly of the view that what gay liberation did not want was marriage or the right to marry because marriage was something they looked down on for everybody. Now, I, I have my own opinions about all of that, you know, having moved um, along from my Marxist um, upbringing. But, uh, but, but still, it, there was an integrity to that position because it was, it, was in, it was in touch with the readings and the writings and the teachings of, um, you know, the, the, the communist um, intellectual, uh, milieu of the late 19th, early 20th century. And people were familiar with those texts and those writings and they were trying to engage with them and to move on. So if you were a feminist Marxist in the 60s, you would read Marx and then you would read Engels and then you would read Babel and then you would talk about Freud and you would talk about, you know, all of the ways in which, um, you know, these ideas were useful to feminism, but not fit for purpose. And you would critique them. The problem with the left now is that it doesn't critique 
anything uh, that came before and it doesn't establish its own relationship with its own past. It is very utopian and very um, fundamentalist in that it starts from it starts the calendar from from its own time. So we are year dot and the left are writing what is progressive into um, reality as we sit here speaking, but they don't refer to the past, they don't refer to their own traditions, and therefore they're quite happy advocating for marriage for gay people without ever looking at marriage itself and what the left-wing position traditionally has been on marriage and why and where whether the left has changed or not and why is it changed. They don't do that. They just say, you know, everyone has the right to marry who they love. And that's the end of the story. Similarly, you know, we're not allowed to question multinational corporations that are making huge amounts of money and profit out of medicalizing perfectly healthy people. We're not allowed to do that. Well, the left, you'd think, would be interested in, in profiteering, um, uh, you know, in ways that are harmful, in ways that are harmful to humanity. But they don't seem to be interested in profiteering at all. Not at all. They might they might say dismissively that people should pay tax more tax the rich should pay tax they should declare tax whatever they should declare income pay more tax but they never talk about the ethics of how money is made ever it, 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 you know it's never we never we never allowed to talk about the ethics of you know the the pharmaceutical industry or the biotech industries or you know just not allowed to these last days I've had a really strong realization and it's frightening when i think about it i'm going to be interviewing this person who's a whistleblower for google right but basically he has shown how our elections yeah. in the u.s were completely controlled by google and this is frightening he showed a very high percentage of google algorithms in some in just certain number of searches being able to shift the opinion of voters the powers that be in governments, it's in their interest to keep us locked into these computers, divided, proved instrumental during lockdowns, keep us divided, we can't meet up, we are all subject to what Google does. It's not just election results. Have you tried to look at Glenn Greenwald's podcast in Google? It's very hard to find unless you put in very specific wordage. Right. We are being fed a lot of nonsense, which is why you have so many on the left in the US pushing for nuclear war in Ukraine. This is frightening. And if you say, as I've been saying from the beginning, this is not the way to go. Oh, you're a Putin supporter. Now, oh, yeah, yeah, people yeah. knee jerk into that. And it's <laughs> yeah. frightening to me that I'm thinking, can you, I say this all the time, can you walk and chew bubble gum? <laughs> saying that I am not in agreement with the US proxy war, and that's what it is. Let's be clear, we're about to ship over some major missiles. Why on earth can I not say that and be against the war? Well, why, are, why, why, why is there no anti-war movement? I, I don't understand that, you know. I mean, it, just talking about the left having completely shed its own uh, traditions. I mean, if you're going to shed your traditions, then then talk about why you're doing that, you know. Acknowledge the tradition and then engage with it and then say, we are, you know, we're now living in 21st century um uh, UK and uh, you know there is no permissible left-wing uh, justification for what Putin is doing and therefore it is the equivalent of the Nazi invasion uh, of Europe and we have to you know all 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 hands on deck stand together against the Putin um, dictator and, and and there is no space for an anti-war voice here you know say that at least and then people can have a you know a back and forth about it but 
but just to sort of quietly proceed as if there has never been an anti-war movement on the left. There was never an anti-war movement against the invasion of Iraq. Um, you know, there was never an anti-war movement on the left about, you know, what happened in Libya and Syria. I mean, that's very recent history and it's just been completely abandoned. We don't have a single anti-war demonstration. Uh, we have no concerns about what might happen if we, if the West were to unite and go into Ukraine. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we just... We, there's no discussion about the region itself, its history, the populations that inhabit Ukraine, which are, you know, multi-ethnic populations and possible risks those populations face if there was to be a sort of ethno-nationalist Ukrainian um, hegemonic state. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I just think... I've just got to the point now where I've realized that the function of Google and the internet generally is to is to create these um, utterly rigid positions. Um, and there's no space really for what we're doing now. And I hope that we can continue to do what we're doing now where, you know, you might say, oh gosh, you know, we got interrupted or the, the, the recording cut out or we'll have to, I'll have to ask my question again, but there is a certain, there's a certain organic free flowing to it, which people appreciate. Um, and I think people are, are showing a real um, thirst for long form chats with people that have got things to say about, about, about issues that they care about. And, um, you know, we should really be on the, on guard against, um, you know, mechanisms that try to, uh, take that away from us and repackage it as, you know, two sound bites on deeply opposing sides um, and with no room for discussion or, or debate in the middle. I think, I think it's not in the middle because that sounds weak, but I don't say I position myself on the middle, in the middle of anything, but I do say that you come to an understanding of things um, as a human being in a way that is wholly different from how we're represented in social media terms. I mean, it's as if we were all born Owen Jones or we were all born, um, you know, Katie Hopkins and um, we were just born that way, like being gay. And you just have to, you know, then expect that person to um, speak in a certain way for the whole of their life and be bitterly opposed by the person on the other side of the spectrum. But it's just not like that. That's not how people become who they are. I mean, as you you and I know, we've gone on huge journeys where we've had to, where we have embraced things, we've rejected those things, we've we've asked questions. There are things about which I really don't have a position because I just feel so unqualified to speak about it. Um, you know, things which I don't have experience of, things which I've never read about, things that I don't know about things where I don't have friends who know about it that I could talk to and consult. So I would just say, well, on that point, I'll I'll reserve judgment, you know? But there are things that I do feel I have something to say about, but they're not, they don't fall into a package of left or right, you know, or um, politically correct, politically incorrect, or progressive, regressive. They're not, they're not packaged based on that. They're packaged in my body, in my mind, because of the person I am and the journey that I've taken if that's not such a woke, too woke an expression. But I have been on a journey through life and and the internet, I think, is not a... It, it, we have to fight to make and keep the internet a space where the humanity of human beings is preserved. And that involves being able to talk in ways that, that don't 
work from the assumption that we're all positioned on one or other side of a battlefield, you know, um, and that and that there are things that that are to be to be honestly discussed. One of the real things I have problems with in terms of transgender uh, ide ideology is the dishonesty of it, because. You know, it's asking people to be very dishonest. Nobody believes that men and women are the same or, or or interchangeable. I say no one. I believe that. And therefore, the fact that so many people are willing to go along with it means that we're asking people increasingly to adopt a very dishonest persona um, when they go about their daily lives, which is is so unhealthy because if it, it because it's infectious, it means all sorts of issues will become dishonest. You know, what do you really think about Ukraine? Oh, well, I think Putin's a terrible man and he must be stopped at all costs. OK, would you like your child to go and fight in Ukraine? Um, oh, well, that's never going to happen. And let's not talk about it. I've got to go to the toilet now. You know, um, you know, you just end up with this dishonesty where you can't really have a conversation about the implications of war in Ukraine or, you know, and there's so many issues we have where it would require a little bit of time to just talk without these positions being imposed already. So we've touched upon political, sociological and legal aspects of what is an ideology and how this ideology has been in some circles forced down people's throats and others cultivated often even to the end of money making. I mean, mermaids is a great scheme if you want to make money. So are many of these other NGOs that support it, including sadly Stonewall. Now we've seen Stonewall change heads over the past many years, uh, especially due to this ideology, although they won't say so overtly, I believe it is. What do you think is the way forward legally speaking in the sense of had many discussions with people on the show and on social media. Many people say the GRA needs to be repealed. Um, well, laws are repealed. That that happens, uh, and they can be repealed rather rather swiftly um, when when the mood uh, takes um, the 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 government. Uh, I, the example that I gave in my um, speech. Um, at the launch of Reclaim Education and the announcement of proposals to uh, sue the Department for Education, the analogy that I gave was the death penalty. Um, when it was established that there was now a critical mass of feeling that the death penalty was unwarranted, unethical and risk laden um, on the basis of, you know, proven uh, miscarriages of justice where people like Derek Bentley had been hanged without the requisite evidence to satisfy the burden of proof. There were, you know, concession, there was some campaigning, but there were concessions made uh, gradually in Parliament that this was no longer an acceptable um, aspect of British criminal justice. And once that was, once that was allowed to be articulated in the hallowed corridors of power, uh, it was really quite simple to just get rid of the legislation that permitted it. And I think it was more or less overnight that we went from a country that hanged you for murder or capital offence to a country where we didn't. And, uh, you know, there wasn't really much pain in that. I mean, there are people in this country who still would say we we, we should have the death penalty. I'm not saying that 
everybody's satisfied with the status quo now, but it didn't kill anybody, <laughs> if I can say. <laughs> I mean, it didn't kill anybody to abolish the death penalty. There wasn't any sort of teething pains or terrible, you know, um, bureaucratic quagmires created or, you know, confusions in the um, various institutions that dealt with the criminal justice system. It was simply a, 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 like removing something from a, you know, from a, from a body politic. Um, we used to do that. Now we don't. So, I mean, on, on, on principle, I think we can get rid of these um, pieces of legislation. Um, we can get to a point where we say as a society, we don't, we don't recognize gender identity. We don't recognize um, gender, even gender reassignment. I mean, that's a, that's, that's going to strike, strike a lot of people as very radical, but you know what lobotomies um, were a perfectly legitimate approach to dealing with somebody's mental health or social deviance, that they were perfectly legitimate and they were absolute standard forms of medical practice. And uh, we stopped it. So, you know, when people say, oh, you know, gender reassignment, what about all the poor people that are trans identified? It's like, well, maybe they aren't going to be trans identified if the, if the, if the heinous practice um, is recognized for what it is, heinous. It's heinous, 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 heinous to experiment on a healthy body in that way. Um, because because of somebody's mental, whatever, um, vulnerability. With the case and what you're dealing with, one of my questions is this. I'm calling it a case. As an American, and you're talking about hundreds of people, could this be a class action case? And is this a lawsuit or is this another kind of case? Well, it would be a class action in the United States. We don't really use that term in the UK. Uh, and um, the phrase that, that that is used is group litigation. Um, and there are a number of ways in which group litigation can be pursued um and that and it has it has to be pursued carefully it's not something you just rush into gung-ho fashion um but i mean obviously there are there are mechanisms in the united kingdom as in the us for dealing with uh, a common complaint that is shared um across disparate groups of people um and they're very rare in the uk these sort of class action suits i mean as they're called in the us they're, they're very rare they're they're, they're not common. And so, you know, the, the expertise um, available to deal with this kind of case, given that the area is so niche as well, it's not just, it's not just that the class action phenomenon itself is quite unusual in the UK context. It's that the, 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 the complaint, the nature of the complaint is quite unusual as well, um, because it deals with all the issues that we've been talking about, which are quite contentious very sensitive there's a lot of emotions around them there's a lot of political nervousness which will infect the judiciary as well as the political class i mean you know ju the judiciary in in britain have to go by something called the judicial bench book which is a training manual for for judges who 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 have to um use it again as guidance to avoid um appearing um insensitive uh, to you know to 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 various identities uh, that may come before them at the bench. So for example, you know, what is the right word to use if you have somebody from a traveler community before you? And are, are, there, are there prohibitions on using words like gypsy or traveler or Roma? What's the correct word to use? And so when it comes to transgender, which has a whole chapter in that training manual, it's all lots of stuff about, you know, the correct pronoun to use to make the, the person feel, you know, not marginalized by, by the judicial process, even if 
that transgender person is the perpetrator of a criminal act, a sexual assault, you know, that 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 doesn't matter. They have to feel included um, by virtue of the, you know, the judge making special, taking special measures to use the correct pronouns and so on. So, you know, when you when you're bringing sort of uh, legal actions on this issue, you know, you're dealing with a lot of baggage. Um, and this is why, for me, the political indoctrination point is the cleanest point. Um, you know, having thought about it, I think ultimately what we're trying to do is to is to build a society in which we we send our children to school in the expectation that where there's a there are contentious issues that the school feels it must address, whether because it's told to address them as part of a curriculum or whether it because it feels it has to address them as part of some educate equality diversity uh, initiative. Um, that it has a responsibility to present as the the letter of the statute has it in a fair dispassionate way um <clears throat> uh you know with with attention to uh you know different points of view um that seems to be the, the clearest way is to get is to get the authorities to understand the educational establishment to understand that children have a right not to be indoctrinated in this particular issue we're dealing with an indoctrination of a special type because if I tell a child <clears throat> in school that Putin is to be defeated at all costs and that any person in the United Kingdom who does not go and fight for the Ukrainian national cause is a moral coward and a traitor to, um, you know, to the, the noble causes of, of truth and justice, then you might have at least one or two children in that school who will go off and fight. You know, and then the question, the question, the question is, well, 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 what role did that teacher have, or what role did the school have, in encouraging the child to adopt such an extreme position that they would then take such a risk and go and fight in a war about which they know nothing? Um, you know, to, you know, and 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 risk death. You know, so that's the analogy I would use: that children have a right not to be herded down pathways that will very, very likely cause them harm. But, you know, one thing that when you're speaking now, I'm thinking about an interview I had with an Australian journalist recently where he thought that the distinction should be made that adults are free to do this, but children are not. But then I said to him, but children mirror what adults do often. And that's the tricky part. I don't know if we, we can just get rid of this ideology for children without shining the light on the bullshit that it is for everyone. So Anna, we're at this really crazy point where TWAW, and I agree with you, none of these people, including the TWAWs, know that they know that they are really the sex they were born. Of course because they do. nobody changes sex. Of course and they do. the biggest irony in, in this, in that you and I are being called cis bitches, whatever, <laughs> I argue with them all the time. And I'm like, well, look, I don't have a gender. You claim to. I accept that you say that, and you are the one that went out of your way to do this, this, and this, to change your gender, so you're in the quote-unquote correct gender, air quotes, and therefore, you are cis. You are the real cis, not me. I don't claim to have a gender. You've, yes. you've said that you are unaligned with your gender, and you've corrected it, so you are trans cis. You're a cis cis. You are, I mean, if we're going to work it out mathematically, it works out to cis. So... <laughs> 
I, I'm very upset about the fact that we have to have a very common sense. I mean, this is basic algebra. Yeah, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you did go to all these lengths to show the logic of your position. I mean, it's not based on logic, is it? It's based on power. You know, um, I mean, look, let's be honest. Right? If, if, a, if a guy wants to put some stuff on uh, lipstick and, um, you know, and, and go down the street and be, a, and be embraced for that and and clapped and applauded and 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 you know lauded as a very brave and stunning person you know i i just think well why do you get to have that i mean look back in the day when i was younger i was a bit of a head turner i won't lie um but that is not the case anymore i'm now 48 nobody's head is turning when i'm walking down the street at all None, zero, nobody. I don't get any any attention from men or women um, because I am of a certain age and I'm not giving off, I think, the the, the, the need for that. And it, it's just a fact that as women age, they stop having a certain level of attention from society. Young women have a lot of attention, whether it's wanted or unwanted, and older women start to become increasingly aware that they are... Uh, invisible unless of course they have a voice and they use it in which case they will be told to shut up very 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 quickly uh, using insults and possibly violence and that's why I think every older woman who's listening to this right just remember the power that your words have because you're supposed to be so quiet and because you're unfuckable because you're the over the age of 40 your voice can is like a is it, it's like a detonation device right it has powers well beyond what you really think about it so us women over the age of 40 45 we should be really loud now as the matriarchal common sense voice of society and we should use the words popularized by margaret thatcher um no 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 that's all we have to say where we see it, no, because we do not have the right as middle-aged women to walk down the street and say, everybody, look at me, I'm so fuckable. I think older women now have to start speaking out on behalf of younger younger women who don't have the voice, haven't found their voice, and who probably um, get their fair amount of unwanted attention. Um, but, I, but the reason why I just sort of brought the example up is that, you know, as you said, we don't have an automatic right to attention. Um, and older women know that better than anybody. You know, if 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 we had some attention in our youth, to, to be promising in some talent or gift that we had, by the time that you hit middle age, obviously um, that that that's no longer the case. Um, and I think you know it's it's incumbent on us older women to to realise that when we speak, we don't have to um, navigate those pathways uh, that we did when we were young, which is, you know, here I am uh, on these terms and conditions. We can simply speak with a, with an authentic, true voice um, and say, I, I'm speaking as a human being because I have this position on this matter and I want it heard. And I want it heard because I speak from a position of wisdom and authority and, and, and experience. Uh, I think we don't have enough older women, you know, speaking from wisdom and experience. And when women do that, they are absolutely admired and respected, which is why you're seeing what you're seeing with, with the phenomenon of, Ke of Kelly J. Keane, why you're seeing that with J.K. Rowling, you're seeing it with Maya Forstarter, and you're seeing it with people like, um, in the past, you would even see it with people like Thatcher or um, Mary Whitehouse, the moral 
crusader Mary Whitehouse, who was against, you know, the the, the sort of sullying of public life um, and the rise of pornography. And she was quite homophobic as well. If a man thinks that he has an automatic right to attention um, by putting on a dress um, and we give him that attention because he's a man and we're used as women to saying like men are in the limelight. They always have to be the center of attention and we're just going to be the audience and we're going to facilitate this. Then then we we should not expect anything good to come of it, um, I think, other than some male egos are going to be momentarily aroused and stimulated, but a lot of people are going to be collateral damage. Whereas if women in their late life, midlife, late life, who no longer suffer from wanting attention for attention's sake, sexual attention or the attention of, 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 of an approving society that says you're doing the right thing, if you've shed that, which a lot of women have by the time they hit their 40s, they've just given up on trying to please, if they are on the right path, as I would put it, um, then their voices can be very, very powerful. Because when we speak, we don't want attention. We're not doing it because we want people to look at how special we are. We're speaking because we know of what we speak. We have had children. We've raised children. We understand the distinction between the adult world and the child world. We know what safeguarding is. We understand the importance of boundaries and we know what dignity and privacy, which are key coordinates of human rights law, what they actually mean in practice when it comes to young girls and young boys, and what it means to give young girls and boys dignity and privacy, why it's important to recognise that being a, an adolescent boy is a wholly different experience than being an adolescent girl, and the responsibility of the family and the responsibility of schools to navigate that path for children without confusing them or torturing them or giving them, you know, false ideas about what health is and what the body is and what identity is. You know, when women who've had children or women of a certain age, they have this way of plain speaking. We see with someone like Kelly J that really people will listen. Men will listen. Women will listen. Even trans activists will listen because it is an authoritative voice that is sadly lacking in our society. We get all of these whingy sort of female politicians who are trying to be, you know, as plain as they can be, as, as wishy-washy as they can be, as, as progressive sounding and woke sounding as they can be, because they think that's the way to further their political careers. But that's not what we want from a female politician. What you want from a female politician is a matriarchal clarity. You know, and if we have patriarchal clarity and matriarchal clarity, then may the best man or woman win, you know? But this idea that everybody's just going to, you know, either um, play for attention, for momentary gratification, which is what we're seeing with narcissists and, and fetishists within within this, this cult, uh, or just be silent, or just be, um, you know, non-committal, if you're a member of the political class, then we're not going to get anywhere. We need strong, strident voices. And I think that primarily there is a responsibility, moral responsibility on all women of a certain age to, 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 to parent the nation and say, no, enough. There is a boundary here and cross it, you do not. And I mean it. So you leave this changing room, you leave this toilet, you leave this sports team. It is not happening on our watch and we're not going to let it happen and if you think you're coming into schools and into libraries dressed like that 
If you think you're going to peddle your grubby pornography to these people, these young people who are just navigating the first throes of puberty, you've got another thing coming. It's not happening. And the law supports us. The majority support us. The international majority support us. And it's not going to go away. So I think, you know, with 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 a, with a large um, critical mass of middle aged women on our side, we can actually get to the point where it does become possible to repeal some of this legislation because it is like the death penalty, simply no longer morally tenable, but women have to speak up. I know that a lot of women say we need men speaking up on our side. I, I you know, good for you men, if you wanna speak up on our side, that's fine. But I think uh, I don't need a man to speak for me. I, I want to say what I want to say and I want other women who I know understand what I'm saying to, to join me and in in and 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 put the adult human female case to um to the relevant authorities because it is the adult human female case that men are behaving in a way that adult human females find unacceptable and that has to be addressed and they are breaking the law Thank you.